0: latest fan podcast. I'm Kyle Caldwell, your host. I am the Collectives Editor at Interactive Investor. Later on in the podcast is an interview with Ken Wotton, who is a fund manager that specializes in investing in UK smaller company shares. But before that, me and Tom Bailey, the ETFs Editor at Interactive Investor, are going to chat through a couple of news items that are related to funds and investment trusts. Tom, let's start off with dividends. The latest Global Dividend Index from Janice Henderson has uh, just been published earlier this week. It seems to be, on the whole, good news for investors with uh, Global Dividends expected to regain their pre-pandemic highs by the end of this year. Is it all as good as it seems, Tom?
1: Yeah, I'd say it's mostly uh, seems like good news. So the report showed that uh, global dividends totaled just over 400 billion in the third quarter of 2021. Um, That's an all time high for a third quarter. Um, And in total, uh, 90 percent of companies either raised their dividends or held them steady in in the quarter. That's a much higher number than usual. Um, And and then one thing that stood out, though, is that uh, it was really the mining sector that carried the weight here. So two thirds of the year on year growth in payments in the third quarter was down to that sector alone.
0: So looking ahead to 2022, there's potentially a danger that global dividend growth may disappoint, given that, as you've mentioned, Tom, the miners have been such a big contributor to global dividend growth this year on the back of rising commodity prices. And given the volatile nature of commodity prices, I wouldn't bank on those companies continuing to pay dividends at such high levels.
1: Well, yeah, this, this is kind of the, the, the complex macro questions that, that kind of feed into, into the, these things. So, you know, uh, the it depends on the uh, ability of quantity prices to remain elevated. So is the surge in demand simply, is it so it's a surge in, in quantity prices simply, you know, the reflect of the global economy coming back online uh, in kind of the, the lockdowns? And, and we'll kind of see that effect peter out. Or as kind of some places such as Goldman Sachs are predicting, you know, we're on the cusp of a new commodity super cycle driven somewhat ironically by the growth of clean energy. So, you know, electric cars, winter by the solar panels, all these are actually very metal heavy, um, uh, have a very metal heavy manufacturing process, take a lot of metal inputs. Um, so obviously that, that that will lead to a sustained increased uh, demand in, in, in metals down the line. Um, that, although then on the other hand, uh, we see, say, China, one of the biggest commodity uh, consumers in the world move away from its very investment-heavy economic model, uh, and that's seen by some as a threat to commodity prices. There, so you know, these are very hard questions to predict. Um, so you're right; there, there, there is that risk out there for for income investors that the the big payers uh, are becoming commodity commodity producers, but at the same time, how how long can that last?
0: But a big positive is that a global dividend cover is expected next year to reach its highest level since 2013. Dividend cover is a ratio that measures a company's income to its dividend payments. It's a very useful measure as it indicates how sustainable a company's dividend is. And as a rule of thumb, a low dividend cover of around one times or lower suggests that uh, dividends are vulnerable as the company is using most, if not all, of its profits to fund the dividends. A figure of two or more, however, is viewed as comfortable because this is a sign that a business is not over-distributing on the dividend front, uh, and it's expected that for 2022, according to Janice Henderson, the dividend cover will be 2.4 times, up from 2.1 times this year. So this indicates that um, companies across various industries and sectors are, on a global scale, in a healthy position to increase the dividend payments next year, and that in theory, uh, dividend cuts will be lower. Uh, in terms of num- in terms of number of companies than in previous years. We're now going to move on to uh, junior ISAs. It was the 10th anniversary of the junior ISA at the start of the month. Uh, research from funds rating agency, fund Calibre, revealed how parents who had the luck or foresight to pick one of the top 20 FUN performers over the past decade and um, how well they've been handsomely rewarded. I mean, given that we have that benefit of hindsight, Tom, um the fact that seventeen of the top twenty performing funds over the past decade invest in the US or technology sectors, that does not come as a, much of a surprise?
1: No, no, of course not. I mean, the past decade's been defined by the continued up performance of large cap growth stocks, principally in the US market and, and, and in the tech sectors or, or kind of tech adjacent sectors. Um there's there's kind of multiple theories on this. Obviously we've seen the rise of the kind of platform economy, but also yeah, of low interest rates, all the, the kind of the weak recovery we saw after two thousand eight crash, kind of has has meant itself towards the outperformance of these particular types of stocks. I mean, but whatever the 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 actual explanation, and, and people can continue to debate this. Um, yeah, it's obviously it's no surprise. And the best best performers were names like Bailey Gifford American, Morgan Stanley U.S. Growth, Fidelity Global Technology, and so in the case of Bailey Gifford American over that ten year period, it would have turned thirty six hundred pounds, three thousand six hundred pounds. Into just over 36k, obviously a huge amount. The trouble, of course, though, is that um, you know many parents still open cash ISA um, over 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 a stocks and shares ISA, um, which arguably is not the best approach. At least um, as we can see with these statistics over the past decade, with a huge bull run in in, in stocks.
0: Yes, that's correct, Tom. Uh, parents do tend to be overly cautious in favouring the cash version of the junior ISA. The latest uh, statistics show that in the 2018-2019 tax year, money was put into 954,000 junior ISAs, with 70% of those being cash ISAs and the remaining 30% being the stocks and shares ISA version. As the money cannot be accessed until a child's 18th birthday, parents risk being too cautious in favouring cash over stocks and shares, while there are no guarantees, history shows that this is an adequately long enough time period to ride out the peaks and troughs that are part of investing in the stock market. And a final point to make is that um, the rules do permit parents to open one cash ISA and one stocks and shares ISA. So you can mix and match between the two. It's You don't have to choose one or the or the other.
1: So I assume for your kids, Carl, um, you've opened the, uh, the stocks and shares version of the junior ISA.
0: Yes, that's correct. Um, you know, first and foremost, I think, obviously, as a financial journalist, it's very important for me to practice what I preach. Um, yeah, so, I've got a four year old son and an 18 month year old daughter. And yeah, they both have the stocks and shares version of the Junior ISA. Uh, and they're both invested in investment trusts. Uh, my son is invested in the Aberdeen Asia Smaller Companies Investment Trust. And my daughter's ISA is in the uh, Edinburgh Worldwide Investment Trust. And one of the reasons why me and my partner picked those investment trusts over others is because they both invest in smaller companies. And as history has shown time and time again, smaller companies over the very long term outperform larger companies. It's called the uh, small cap effect. And um, I wanted my children to to hopefully benefit from that.
1: I suppose the main risk with a junior ISA is that when the child turns 18, they can do whatever they want with it. So if you do see these kind of, these great returns in, in in the study we spoke about earlier um they a choice how to spend it
0: yes that's uh, that's right tom that you know when you when a parent sets up a junior ISA they've effectively cut a key for their children to uh, use and withdraw all the cash in one fellow swoop if they if they wish when they turn 18 i mean with my two children i'd hope that the money is spent sensibly or that um my son and daughter continue to Invest towards one of the big goals in life, such as owning a property, but you know it won't be for me to uh, decide. Um, and against that, though, that you know the money, as, as the money in the junior ISA is held in the child's name, it does it doesn't mean the parents cannot just dip into it if you know if they have a, a you know shortfall. Sure if um, you know, some parents will you know may view that as a as an advantage, and others may view that as a uh, as a disadvantage. I mean, if if parents do want to have control then given that the ISA allowance is, you know, very generous at 20,000 pounds a year, and, it, it, and it, may an, it may be an allowance for many that, you know, they, that they don't fully utilize, then you know, another approach could be to, you know, use some of that allowance to invest for your child um, and keep it separate from your own. Um, but you know, you'd have to do that sort of manually uh, yourself. For our fund manager interview, I'm joined by Ken Wotton, who is a smaller company fund manager at Gresham House. Ken runs three UK smaller company open-ended funds. He also runs the Baronsmead VCTs and also manages the Strategic Equity Capital Investment Trust. So, Ken, could you firstly run through your investment philosophy? What sorts of qualities do you look for in a company and also what do you not like to see? That would put you off from investing.
2: Yeah, firstly, in, in terms of our investment philosophy, um, we we describe our, our process as taking a private equity approach to public markets, and, and what we mean by that is um, we're trying to help to build better businesses. So we're we're actively engaged investors. We um, we're, we're trying to find high quality companies and, you know, that that. That's partly about financial metrics, so businesses that have sort of attractive margins, that have uh, you know, high return on capital, that are profitable, that generate cash, um, that are growing attractive growth rates. Um, and But also, not just the financial metrics, it's also about the, the, I guess, the business, the fundamental quality, so high quality management teams, good alignment of interest uh, with us as shareholders, uh, attractive market opportunities and you know building conviction that the companies have you know a sustainable competitive advantage in what they're doing some something different whether that's intellectual property or you know, strong customer base recur you know recurring revenue um or, you know, it depends on the company in the sector so we we, we like high quality companies we're, we're long term investors we like to engage actively with management teams and. Where relevant and where possible, we want to make introductions to our network and, and contribute to, to uh, sort of introducing people who can help them to, to uh, pursue their strategy. So that's our philosophy um, and the types of company we look for. So we we, we try to avoid businesses that are loss making, businesses that don't generate cash, businesses that are too highly leveraged, um, and also we we avoid certain sectors and certain. Uh, sort of end market characteristics, so we don't invest in sectors like oil and gas, mining, um, you know, parts of real estate, uh, bec- because they are sectors that are affected by big external factors that are outside the control of the management team, and also the areas, you know, things like the oil price, which I don't feel I'm particularly well qualified to to try and call. Um, and then we also avoid heavily loss making businesses, early stage technology, binary, um, sort of drug development that. that whether the investment case is reliant on drug being approved or not. So, th- those kind of more volatile, more binary type investment situations where you might get a great upside if it goes well, but the downside risk is very high as well. So, we're trying to deliver uh, good quality returns, but also consistency. And so, we try to screen out some of those areas of the market which are more volatile.
0: So, it's very much a bottom up stock picking style rather than um, taking into account um, macroeconomic factors. Yeah, I think our
2: process is designed to, as much as possible, obviously we can't be completely, but to be you know, somewhat insulated from the, the wider market, market and, and the wider economy. So we want to find businesses that can deliver our the investment returns that we're anticipating, regardless of whether they've got a tailwind or a headwind from, from the overall economy, because, because they have structural growth or something specific about their situation, which means that they can deliver and grow and, Sort of deliver returns, even if the economy isn't helping them, um, and that—that's our philosophy. So, which means we don't sort of chop and change our portfolio to try and call the, the economic cycle, the market cycle. We're we, we're trying to deliver consistency throughout the market cycle.
0: You mentioned there um, headwinds and tailwinds, and in t- and in terms of the UK stock market, there's been a number of headwinds facing the market for uh, some time, um, but. It, both domestic and international investors um, are still holding back from increasing exposure to the UK, despite some of those headwinds, um, the Brexit vote and um, COVID-19, the pandemic, despite those headwinds becoming becoming less of a headwind than they, than they were, investors are still shying away from the UK. Why do you think that is and what do you think the catalyst will be for investors to return to the UK market?
2: I think you're absolutely right that the UK market has been out of favour for for quite some time. I think really it dates back to the the Brexit referendum result in two thousand sixteen, um, and so there's been outflows and and some sort of asset allocations have been underweighting the UK really since then. Um, I think um, you know th- there's a bit of a structural shift, which is you know, a great you know, a, a greater asset allocation towards global equity funds rather than uh, than to sort of specific country funds, which I think has, has been a factor. But um, you know, I think mainly it's been a, a, sort of a view on the UK economy um, you know, driven by Brexit. And then during the pandemic, I think there was a period where uh, because Britain was perceived to be ahead of the curve in terms of vaccine deployment and, and rollout, you know, there was a, a bit of interest again in the UK and sort of on a relative basis, there was some some flows coming back. I um, think that's, that's stalled somewhat in, in recent months. Look, I think the the, the catalyst will be evidence of good recovery and economic recovery in the UK, and um, and evidence that the the UK can deliver sort of sensible economic growth. Um, But but again, as I said before, we we as investors are trying to look through that, not not try and make a major call on whether the UK economy is going to be. In, in favor or not in favor, or, or, or grow faster or, or not in other markets. Um, but would you take some comfort from, in terms of, you know, I guess things like the risk of a of a market correction? I think the fact that the UK has been trading you know, for a persistent, material, multi decade discount to, to other developed markets, particularly the US, um, and the fact that smaller companies you know, are trading on multi-year discounts to, to larger UK listed companies. I think that both those, those discounts do actually give us some, some mitigation and some uh, you know, insulation from sort of the volatility we're seeing across global stock markets at the moment. So you know, I'm not sure what the catalyst will be. Um, I don't necessarily see one short term for a major rethink in terms of asset allocation to the UK, but, but I do feel that the downside risk is somewhat protected by the valuation discrepancy.
0: And is there, is there a danger that um, investors will remain on the sidelines for too long and miss the opportunity of UK shares being this cheap compared to overseas markets? I mean, smaller company funds and trusts have performed really well over the past year, um, including the funds that you manage. I think I think the sector averages around 50% over the past year. So, I mean, I mean to me, that sort of makes me think, have investors potentially already missed the both? I don't really
2: think so. I think, yeah. That 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 very strong performance over the last year you know, it does come on the back of an you know, extremely uh, sort of sharp decline in stock markets at the beginning of 2020 on the back of the, the, the pandemic. So you know the, there's a there's a material element of recovery in that in that uh, in that performance number. I think you know, periodically small caps do have you know, a stellar year, um, but we again we're, we're really trying to look for consistent through the cycle returns from, from, from our funds so you know, uh, I, I don't I don't think that investors have missed out on the opportunity in the UK small cap I think there's a really attractive opportunity at the moment the discontinuity caused by COVID and lockdowns and, and the uneven recovery in terms of how different sectors perform means that there's loads of opportunity at the moment and whilst there are some pockets of uh, you know, stretch valuations and particularly in sort of, you know, really high growth tech areas of the market. Actually, I think, you know, there's there's whole swathes of the kind of more normal economy and, and, and other sectors where there's still really good value. Uh, and you can see that from uh, the space of takeover offers that we've seen across the market over the last uh, 12 months. So the, I, I can't remember a time in my career where I've seen quite so many takeover offers. Oh. Uh, and it's across the market cap spectrum. It's not just in small cap, and and you've got you know ranging right up to some Morrison's in, in in the FTSE one hundred. So you've you've got smart you know, either private equity or trade buyers who are sophisticated and who understand particular sectors or, or areas who are seeing really attractive value in the UK listed equities at the moment. So I think you know, in, until that discount to overseas markets closes um i think there's still a good opportunity for investors to, to to make good returns out of this area
0: so in terms of um recent portfolio activity are there any um holdings or sectors that you would highlight that you've been um adding to lately
2: and we we we're not really sort of sector focused investors in, in in terms of that like, we don't make individual investment decisions in order to try and sort of add weightings to particular sectors because we've got a got a particular macro view um yeah, so we're very much bottom-up investors and our sector weightings are the consequence of our, of our bottom-up stock uh, stock selection so um, yes there are there are companies that we've been adding to lately I think you know, we've, we've, we've been doing in, t- in terms of our overall positioning um over the last 12 to 18 months you know, the, the, the broadly what we've been doing has been taking profits in some areas of the, of the portfolio which have performed really strongly where you know, resilient businesses that have performed well through the pandemic period and have, you know, not only have they performed well from a sort of earnings perspective, but the share prices have sort of discounted that and then some. So they've they've, they've sort of shares have performed better than the than the earnings and they've gone to, to to premium rating So we've taken the opportunity to to either take top slice or or fully exit some businesses in that category. Uh things like S four Capital, Martin Sorrells. Um, Digital marketing consultancy, fantastic business, grown brilliantly, but now trading at very, very uh, uh, premium valuation. Impact asset management, fantastic business, uh, ESG and sustainability focused asset management business. We've been in for a really long time. One of our best ever uh, com- contributors to our, our performance, and that, uh, yeah, but that's gone to a, again, a, a premium multiple on the back of uh, you know, really, really big focus on ESG uh, over the last 12 to 24 months. Uh, again, we're taking the opportunity of that demand for those shares to to to, to exit. They're really attractive uh, returns. And we've we've recycled those um, th- those returns into areas of the market that have been sort of slightly left behind in, in the recovery. So, so areas like leisure. Um, so we've got investments across a number of different leisure stocks, such as um, we, we own Everyman Cinemas. and We own uh, lounges, the cafe bar operator. We own the city pub company, um, independent sort of freehold pub operator. Uh, we have the gym group, the low cost gym operator uh, and 10 entertainment group, the the, the uh, number two pin bowling operator in the UK. All of those stocks clearly have been impacted materially through, through COVID because of lockdowns, um, but all of them we think have got great quality management teams, the balance sheets are in a strong position. And actually on a relative competitive basis, as we emerge from COVID and, and uh, things return to normal, we think all of them are, are sort of actually probably better uh, positioned from a competitive point of view, compared to some of their independent uh, peer group than they were, were uh pre-COVID. So there's areas like that. And then we've been selectively adding um, to, to investing in, in, a, in, a, in a few IPOs. So um, you know, there's been a number of IPOs. I mean, actually the, ele- the level of IPOs has been sort of elevated for quite some time during this year. and we we're, we're very selective but because of our private equity approach and and our our, our wider business, uh, divisional platform of question where we've got private and public equity in the same business we've got really great network in, in the private equity sphere and often we can really uh, diligence some of these companies uh, very effectively before the iPO because we've got some touch points in private markets who who, who can reference them so um, as i said on on a very selective basis we've been adding to few names in the IPO market and to, just to name a couple uh, there's a business called Cooth, which is a um, it's a sort of software and services provider into the NHS um, providing services around mental health provision to children and young people so it's good good some socially beneficial uh, service they're providing and, and um, but it's also done on a very attractive revenue model where it's sort of multi-year contracted recurring revenue um, and it's grown fantastic since the IPO uh, late last year, another one, Elixir, which is a digital transformation consultancy business, which um, you know it's a, you know, advising big corporates on their digital strategy and the implementation of technology, and that's a, a really hot area at the moment, where you know, there are. Know, pretty much every company in every sector is trying to think through how technology can support their business, in either to be more efficient or to attract more customers to help them grow. And, and that's where you know, Elixir are right in the sweet spot of that and, and uh, helping those companies to, 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 uh, to deliver on their strategy. So it's been growing fantastically, and the share price has, has followed along with that. So you know, there's, there's great opportunities at the moment. Just, just sort of you need to look at and And you know, within Small Cap, the, the great thing about that part of the market is there is. You know, there's always interesting opportunities. It's a dynamic market. There's always new companies coming along, new opportunities.
0: And when you're um, examining uh, new opportunities, and indeed, um, you know, examining the rest of the of, of the current holdings in in your portfolios, how much do you factor in something like inflation, which is um, on the rise at the moment, and the as um, the consumer prices index is expected to average at around four percent next year.
2: Great question. I think. You know, inflation is clearly a sort of very front of mind for a lot of investors at the moment. It's a um, it's an issue which has certainly contributed to the sort of increasing volatility in the in the market at the moment, um, uh, relative to earlier on in the year. Um, and I think it's real. I mean, so the, we we can have a debate about whether it's uh, a transitory or, or, or structural. Um, I, I'm so, I'm on the sort of transitory. I'm uh, uh, in mean, the transitory camp, I guess, but. Yeah, you know, I'm not an economist, so I'm not trying to really call that. I think what I would say in terms of our portfolios, um, most of the businesses that we invest in, um, because they're high-quality companies that have got a structural competitive advantage of some sort. That's that's what we seek. That means they've got pricing power, which means that even if they do see cost inflation coming through, uh, it is likely that they can pass that on. And also, you know, we we like growing businesses. Typically, are Companies have low levels of debt, and uh, they have, you know, potential for positive operational gearing as they grow their, their revenue. So, uh, you know, they have they have scope within their margin structure to, uh, I guess, absorb inflationary cost pressures. Um, you know, because their margins are expanding as they grow. So, you know, I, I'm I'm not, you know, blind to the risks around inflation. And there are you know, there, there are some of our companies which which are more exposed, but the majority of our companies are relatively well positioned to, to, to deal with inflation. Um, and yeah, that, that's, that's down to the types of businesses that we like to, like to invest in.
0: And finally, a question that we ask all our fund manager guests, do you have skin in the game? Um, I know you manage a number of funds. Um, do you invest in all of them?
2: Absolutely, yes. I mean, it's not an, it's not a mandatory, requirements of working here that we have to invest in all of our funds but personally I do invest in all the funds that I manage because uh, firstly I absolutely believe in what we're doing and I, and I have high conviction in, in, in the portfolios we manage and you know, I'd, I'd rather put my, my own money behind the, the the investment portfolios that I have high conviction in and the highest conviction I have is in the ones that I manage myself so I absolutely have, have you know, material personal Investments in all of the funds that I manage. Um, and I think it also sort of avoids any conflicts of interest. So I'm we, we not investing in individual stocks that you know, could also be going to the fund or, uh, you know, because that, that just creates too much complexity. I think if we're going to have exposure to attractive small cap investments that I think are going to go up, then, then I'll do that through our funds.
0: Ken, thank you very much for your time today. Okay, thank you. That's it for this week. Uh, Please do uh, check out uh, ii.co.uk for the latest fund spotlight. There's also lots more fund, investment trust, and ETF content on the website. I hope that you've enjoyed the podcast. Please do spread the word, like, and subscribe. We'll be back in early December.